At your right hand stands the queen. Now, Matt, Kenny, you guys know what that symbolism entails. In the New Testament, we find Jesus risen from the dead, ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father to reign over heaven and earth until every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord of heaven and earth. This is what it means to be at the right hand. To be at the king's right hand is to be in a position of immense prestige and authority. There's the Old Testament type. There's the Old Testament image and shadow that we want to look at as our background today. Welcome to another glorious episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny, where we have today a bit of an elevated conversation. We've been going through our series on the Marian dogmas, and today we get to talk about the assumption of Mary, her bodily assumption into heaven. Before we get into that, I do want to let you know that what you're watching is a production of the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. You can find all the episodes that Ken and Kenny and I have done, uh, not just on the other Marian dogmas, but on other things like Sola Scriptura and justification and stuff like that. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to join our online community and chat with other people who are going through these questions and processing them, then please do visit community.chnetwork.org. And if you want to support our work so that uh, these kinds of things always remain free, and uh, not just these things, but other things like retreats for Protestant pastors who are looking for support, uh, we do a lot of things to help people out uh, if you support us. So go to chnetwork.org slash donate. You can even become a monthly donor there. Ken, Kenny, are you ready to talk about the assumption? Absolutely. I'm looking forward I to this one. So. Yes. Right. I assume so. I assume I'm ready. Just to it's, lay the it's ground. It's my assumption. <laughs> it is our assumption. Uh, so yeah. Kenny Burchard, you are a Pentecostal Foursquare pastor. Ken Hensley, you are a Baptist uh, pastor. I was neither of those things, but I do recall, and I think I mentioned this um, when I was doing a couple of episodes on my own sort of story, that when I was in Bible college at a Methodist school, well, a Wesleyan tradition school, Asbury College, we took an art appreciation field trip up to Cincinnati, and we stopped in Covington, Kentucky, uh, me knowing absolutely nothing about what we're about to discuss today, because I was from the Bible Belt, where there hmm. You didn't just run into Catholics at Kroger's mm -hmm. or anything. Uh, and I was told that, the, that we were going to make a stop in Covington where they have one of the largest hand-blown stained glass windows in the world there at the Covington Cathedral. It's the Cathedral Basilica mm -hmm. of the Assumption. And I remember pulling up to the building and me mm -hmm. saying the kinds of things that I tend to say, said, this is an awfully big building uh, to build based on an assumption of course me having no idea what the assumption of mary was that anybody believed this sort of thing or any of it so that's yeah. where i was back in we'll say circa 2001 hmm. so hmm. ken if you could let us know Speak. how to kind of frame all this <laughs> well uh, we have another episode that's going to be jam jam packed and so 
I will not even yes. pause to say hi, except <laughs> to say hi. And we're going to get right into it, okay? In this series, which we've been focusing on the Marian dogmas, okay, we have talked so far about Mary's divine maternity, the first Marian dogma, Mary as the mother of God. We've talked about Mary's perpetual virginity, and we've spent three weeks talking about Mary's Immaculate Conception. Today, as you mentioned, we're going to tackle the fourth and final Marian dogma, that is Mary's bodily assumption into heaven. On November 1st, 1950, another late date, Pope Pius XII, in his apostolic constitution, Munificentissimus Deus, proclaimed, and now I'm quoting, that the Immaculate Mother of God, Mary Ever-Virgin, when the course of her earthly life was ended, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. Now, notice the words, when the course of her earthly life was ended. Doesn't say before she died, doesn't say after she died. It simply says when the course of her earthly life was ended. So that's an open issue. That's not something that the dogma requires one way or the, the other. Now, Okay, as we look to biblical support, which is what we're going to focus on today, for the church's teaching on Mary's assumption, I want to begin by simply saying this. Let me insist that the idea, the concept, the notion of God bringing someone to heaven before or after natural death is not something that should seem strange or unbiblical to any Bible-believing Christian. Christians of all stripes believe that when we read in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him, that we are most probably reading about God bodily assuming someone into heaven. This is the way I've always heard it understood. Christians of all stripes also believe that in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have a second example of God bodily assuming one of his own into heaven. And I'm going to read that to you. And as they still went on and talked, uh, referring to Elijah and Elisha, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So just want to start there with something very basic, fundamental, something very simple, really. For Bible-believing Christians of all stripes, there should be nothing strange in the idea that someone who had walked very closely with God might be taken up into heaven, body and soul. And if what we have outlined in the previous episodes about Mary being the mother of the incarnate Son of God, her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her sinlessness, if these propositions are true, then I guess I could ask who in human history walked more closely with God? than the Immaculate Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord. There's precedent, is what we're saying. There's precedent uh, yes. to be to being caught up in the glory, right? And uh, I'm sure mm -hmm. that Kenny Burchard even preached sermons that sounded well, a little bit like that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, this it wouldn't be true for all evangelical Protestants to believe in the doctrine of the rapture, which, which by the way, if if we think later doctrines are excluded because they're later, then this one counts. Mm -hmm. But it it wouldn't be strange for there to be people listening right now, even people from the church I pastored, who have heard uh, a version of eschatology that includes Christians being taken up into heaven, mm -hmm. body and soul, 
and kept there for a period of time and then coming back again <laughs> with Jesus, you know, and into So there's another so, so there's another example. Right. So so I'm just yeah. saying and this is this again this is an interpretive idea in the New Testament that certain mm-hmm. Protestants have em- embraced and the tradition that I came from embraced that. Now that is not a Catholic idea, but it's present. Uh, it's certainly something, and I think I mentioned this mm-hmm. in my, you know, storytelling episodes too, that caught my imagination up, as it were. Um, but th- this is all good and well, and you know, we talked about this with some other dogmas previously. I mean, it makes sense that Jesus would, if Mary was closer to him. Uh, I mean, he was in nine months within inches of her heart, right? <laughs> While in her womb. I mean, this is as close as he could be to another human being in his life. That he could want Mary with him in mm-hmm. paradise. Uh, he said something to the thief even, right? Uh, making a promise like that. Yeah. But the question is, did he, <laughs> right? Because that's yeah. where the question yeah. really sticks. Um, so do we have anything that says... Yes, this did happen because a lot of people would point. I mean, I would have pointed to the Bible and said, "Show it to me," because I don't see it anywhere. Okay, so we've talked about precedent with Enoch, with with Elijah. Um, if you're a dispensationalist with the concept of the rapture, and by the way, Kenny and Matt, I the the Christianity that I was welcomed into when I first came to faith in Christ was a pretty radically di- dispensationalist version. So, okay, we we've talked about precedent. But Matt, you're asking the question, okay, it's possible, it makes sense, Bible-believing Christians shouldn't think it's something crazy or strange, but right. did it happen? And that, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to begin in the Old Testament, um, as we did with, as we have in the past. When addressing the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, we spent a good deal of time, in fact, talking about various themes in biblical theology, and in particular, biblical typology. We saw that Mary is the new Eve and uh, revealed as such in Scripture, as well as the Ark of the New Covenant that Mary fulfills in the New Testament these particular Old Testament images and types. And I want to begin today by looking at another Old Testament image and type, and that is the, the, the image, the type of the Queen Mother in the Davidic Kingdom. So let's go back to Old Testament for a while. Forget about the new. We'll be coming to it, all right? In, in ancient kingdoms of the time, including the ancient kingdoms of Israel, including the kingdom of David, the queen was not the wife of the king. Right. And that's, that's because, you know, kings often had more than one wife. The queen was instead the king's mother. And because of this, throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles, where we have, all, where we have the list of all the kings that succeeded one another in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah— Whenever a new king is named, we find that it's his mother, not his wife or one of his wives, who is named as well. And I'll give you just one example. 1 Kings 14, verse 21, we read, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah. The Ammonitis, the Ammonitis. Okay, now this is a pattern, though, that is that is repeated again and again and again and again. Every new king that comes to the throne is named, and his mother is named, not his wife, not his father, even, but his mother is named. Now, 
the title for this person in Old Testament Israel in the kingdom of David was Queen Mother. Uh, the Hebrew word is Geburah. It's the feminine form of the Hebrew word Gebir, which means master. So that tells us something. The feminine form of the Hebrew word, which we would translate master. The role or the office of the Queen Mother, it appears, it, it appears was one of tremendous importance. In fact, we learn a great deal about the unique status of the Queen Mother in Israel from the story of Bathsheba, the mother of King Solomon. First of all, in 1 Kings, now listen carefully to this because this is pretty striking. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, we read about Bathsheba coming to her husband, King David, to request something of him. And notice as I read this, notice how Bathsheba comes into the room. She does obeisance to the king. She bows before the king. She refers to him as my Lord. Here it is from 1 Kings 1, 15 through 18. So Bathsheba went to the king into his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shumanite was ministering to the king. Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. Okay, now, notice now, just notice how the roles are reversed once David has died and his son Solomon has been seated on the throne. Now, when Bathsheba goes in to see the king, who is her son, Solomon, right. mm -hmm. it's the king who bows and does obeisance and shows this tremendous deference and honor to his mother. First Kings chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Listen. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. The king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne, and he had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. Okay, so when she comes to her husband, David, she's the one falling flat on her face, my Lord, doing obeisance, you know, bowing down. When she comes to her son, once he has become king, Solomon, it's the king who rises to meet his mother. It's the king who in essence, bows down before her. It's the king who has a throne brought and who seats her on his right, always in Scripture a symbol of, of, of authority, always in ancient history a symbol of authority. Okay, We learn, in fact, from a passage in Jeremiah later on that the queen also wore a beautiful crown. So she's, sit, she's sitting on a throne. She's wearing a crown. The king, is at, the king is saying to her, what can I do for you, mother? Whatever you need, I'll do it. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. As queen mother, Bathsheba is depicted as someone who is able to intercede with the king on behalf of others. We see this especially in 1 Kings chapter 2, from which we just read, where Adonijah comes to Bathsheba with a particular request. And I want to read a bit more, beginning at verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, say on. And he said, pray, ask the King Solomon, ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you. 
to give me Abishag the Shumanite as my wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. Now, all of this makes sense. Having the queen mother as your advocate, obviously it's not going to hurt when coming to the king with a request. And so let, let me just sort of pile these images up and, and summarize what we've done here. All of this to say that when we think about the image that we find of the queen mother in the Old Testament, in the kingdom of David, and her role in the kingdom of David, what we see is someone very special. And this is an idea I had no clue about when I was a Protestant. What we see is someone very, very special, someone who in a sense reigns at the right hand of her son as king, someone who can bring um, requests to the king with, with assurance that the king will answer, someone that the king puts on a throne when she comes into the room, bows down, someone who wears a crown. In fact, to, to finalize this, just listen to this image from Psalm 45, verses 6 through 9. It's speaking to the king. Your divine throne, O king, endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And then, listen, at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. At your right hand stands the queen. Now, Matt, Kenny, you guys know what that symbolism entails. In the New Testament, we find Jesus risen from the dead, ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father to reign over heaven and earth until every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord of heaven and earth. This is what it means to be at the right hand. To be at the king's right hand is to be in a position of immense prestige and authority. There's the Old Testament type. There's the Old Testament image and shadow that we want to look at as our background today. All right, so I just want to briefly point out why um, this was completely invisible to me, this concept. First of all, um, because of the, the the background of thinking what you and I think, was, which is when we think of kings and queens, we think of um, Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> right? Or we think of modern day, you know, what's going to happen with Charles and Diana, um, of course, or Camilla Parker Bowles, or, you know, William and Kate. Uh, so that's the way we think of kings and queens, right? Husband and wife. So that's it's invisible for that reason. Second of all, it's invisible to me, I'm not even looking for it, that none of these uh, kings that are mentioned in the book of First and Second Kings, are, none of their wives are ever mentioned. If they are, I'm not, right. I'm not noticing it. Second of all, when you read the book of Kings, it's all mixed up with the kings of, because it's past the division of the northern kingdom and the southern mm -hmm. kingdom. So you see the um the kings of judah mentioned interspersed with the stories of the kings of israel and the kings of um israel you don't really see their mom's name but the kings of judah by the way this is the line that'll produce jesus you see their moms all named except for one and i think there's only one that you don't see the mom named and that would be uh in first kings 15 which is where um no i'm sorry yeah where it says in verse 9 in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king, became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. Now, why would you mention that unless what you're talking about, Ken, is not just like a, 
a thing that you do nice for your family member, but it's also something more of like an office. If the mom's not around, that office goes to a grandmother because it's like an important like kingdom job. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, stuff that was completely invisible to me. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really great point. And I'm glad you brought it up, Matt, because I, I was going to, if you didn't, that when you read the list of the kings in the divided kingdoms ascending to their thrones, on the Judahite side, the kings of Judah, almost every time the mother of the king is named. Now, by the way, I read those texts in the Old Testament long before I was ever a Catholic, and I just burned through them because, again, I, I had, like we talked in about the last episode, I had ecclesial amnesia. I didn't know to be looking for these things. But when I read the book of First Kings as a Catholic, uh, and if you go through my Catholic Bible, every time in my Catholic Bible the the Queen Mother is mentioned, I underline it and I write in the in the um, and you can see it. I don't know if you can see it here, but it says Queen Mother, and I go through every time in my Bible and I write Queen Mother, Queen Mother, Queen Mother, Queen Mother. And there's around twenty of them in the Judahite line. So this will this will be important as we go through this episode that it is the mother of the. King of Judah, just for those who are watching, let that stick in your brain right here. This is going to be important. As we move forward, though, I guess the question that would come to mind, Matt, is what in the world does any of this have to do with Mary? You guys, again, you're pounding on something in the Old Testament. Yeah. What does this have to do yeah. with Mary? It sounds like, and uh, to be honest, what we've been reading uh, through uh, with these things in the Second Kings and First Kings, it sounds a lot like the Cimmerillion or something, right? I mean, it's like just names that are unpronounceable uh, by the modern American tongue. But yeah, yeah I mean, we got to fast forward, and and this I think helps lay a foundation for what it yeah. is that we're actually looking for in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, it really does. We need so we need to understand what's happening here. What you and you guys pointed it out. We're not talking about the Queen of England or something like this. This is an ancient Near Eastern perspective. This is a, a a perspective in the world of the people living in the Old Testament, including the nation of Israel, that then carries forward. And this, this becomes cultural uh, luggage, not baggage, but cultural luggage and perspective to the folks in the New Testament. So, so then as Christians, what we're looking for in the New Testament is the relationship between the new and the old. And we've said in the series that the relationship is held together through this mechanism of promise and fulfillment, or uh, prototype, archetype, or pre-type and fulfillment, right? And so in these prototypes in the Old Testament, the New Testament Christian casts about looking for the eventual and ultimate fulfillment of these things, in a person, or in persons, or in a, in a people. And so in 2 Samuel, for instance, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God promised David a kingdom that would last forever. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne the throne of his kingdom, forever. So we know in the Old Testament narrative that David's son Solomon did indeed build a house for God's name, the glorious temple. But we also know that the ultimate fulfillment, or the filling up to the full, if you will, 
of this prophecy awaits the coming of the Messiah. And uh, and by the way, this is because it's coming through David. This is going to be a Judahite or a a Judah tribe king, a king from the tribe of Judah from the line of David. And so throughout the gospels we see Jesus set forth as the one who has come to inaugurate this everlasting kingdom that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And and in fact, we see the New Testament gospel writers working hard to make these theological, historical, genealogical connections between Jesus and those and that Old Testament story. So we see at his birth when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will bear a son whose name will be Jesus, and that, quote, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, in case you're wondering who this kid is. And and so what I talked about before, as I said, is this, is this cultural luggage. Mary is going to have the cultural luggage in her mind. She knows the promises about the Davidic king, but she also knows the stories of what happens to Judahite kings when they ascend their throne and they become the ruler. And she knows, I'll have to say it, who she is in relationship to this king of Judah. So we see at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus when the Roman soldiers dress Jesus in a robe They put a crown on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. The chief priests and the scribes mock him on the cross. They say, if you're the king of the Jews, come down and we'll believe you. When Pilate places the sign above the head of Jesus on the cross, he writes, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, so if David is the type, then Jesus is the filling up or the full filling, fulfillment If the old covenant kingdom of David is the type, then the new covenant kingdom inaugurated by Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment. And listen, if the queen mother of the Davidic kingdom, the Judahite king, is the type, then who is the fulfillment? Like, Let's just have a little Bible quiz here on relationship between Old and New Testament Judahite kings and their mothers. So given the... Old Testament image of the Queen Mother, imagine how the events surrounding Mary, uh, Mary's being called to be mother of Jesus, the Messiah, the Davidic King, (laughs) might have been viewed in the eyes of those Jews who were alive at the time with their cultural luggage with them. You know, it's very interesting, too, because we talked uh, during all the discussion of woman and the new Eve about how in John's gospel, uh, Mary is never referred to as Mary, Um, but she is whenever John refers to her as, you know, the mother of Jesus, (laughs) right? Right. Um, It's it's a very kind of, uh, I mean, that relationship to Jesus in this question for John is almost more important than her name. Um, Right. And again, because John's got all that cultural luggage, too. Uh, yes. I mean, and that's not the only reason he's saying that, but you know, you can't help but think about all the things that are in the background of that, of the mind of those people. I mean, again, yeah. you know, this this would be. I mean, think about the people who are expecting a Messiah. I mean, they're expecting the whole kit and caboodle of the Messiah. I mean, of the of the the reestablishment right. of the 
of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So all these pieces would be in play. I, I think that that's a really important point when you when you finish reading the Old Testament and you flip the page to read the New and you start where most of our New Testament start in the Gospel of Matthew, that the Gospel writers are telling a story about Jesus and they're fitting Jesus down inside of the story of Israel. And so all the players in the story have a part to play in that story as well. These are not, you know, uh, nameless, faceless, meaningless actors that are just walking around. These are, these are, these are key players in the story that fill in and fill up key roles. And so, like you said, um, Matt, when you open Matthew's gospel, all of the New Testament scholars that study Matthew tend to agree that Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise and that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So if you ask even a a Protestant New Testament scholar, what's the message of Matthew? His answer is going to be, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Oh boy. Well, Jesus is the king of the Jews is a piece of luggage with a lot of stuff in it. So I unpack just a little bit here. Uh, Matthew's narrative of the Annunciation and the birth of Jesus. As I said, uh, New Testament scholars agree that a key aim of Matthew is to announce that Jesus is king of the Jews, son of David, fulfillment of the promise that God made to David, that, that, that he is David's descendant and a Judahite king who had become king of the whole world. So we shouldn't be surprised in keeping with Old Testament patterns that Matthew draws us into genealogies, a genealogy that ends like this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, Christos, the anointed one. That's king language. So Mary, mother of king, mother of Christ, mother of Lord. There's the pattern. Okay, but but watch now in verse 18, just two verses later. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Watch, listen to what Matthew's doing. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. Next sentence begins. When his mother Mary. Matthew wants to know, wants you to know the name of Jesus' mother. Not all the gospel writers do this. Because why? Matthew's doing theology. He's doing old, he's doing Old Testament, New Testament, promise and fulfillment. Jesus is Judahite king, king of the Jews, his mother is Mary. Now watch what happens in chapter two of Matthew, just a few verses later. And this is, I'll finish this and pass it back to you guys, but watch what happens in chapter two as quote, Jesus the Judahite king, (laughs) the fulfillment of the promise to David continues this way. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Some translations say have come to worship him. Then notice, once they find Jesus, What Matthew, who is proving through the narrative of Jesus' life that he is indeed the promised Messiah, the Judahite king, the promised of the Old Testament, whose ascension to that place of kingly authority is being carefully described. Watch what Matthew does in verses 9 through 11. Let me just read it. It says, They set out, and there ahead of them 
went the star, and they had seen it at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they stopped, and they were overwhelmed with joy. Verse 11, on entering the house, they saw, now listen, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Guys, that's all throne room language. That's kingly motif. That's visitors from other realms visiting a king and giving him a kingly tribute. And who is he with? Well, Matthew wants you to know. He's with Mary, his mother. Matthew doesn't have to do that. And, and you know, something I learned in seminary is the writers of Scripture don't waste a word, and you need to hang on every word they say because these words are heavy laden with meaning and with implications, and, and we have to draw those out. So what do we have in the Old Testament repeated over and over again? When the king of Judah succeeds, his predecessor, he is named as the king, Messiah or the anointed one. He is recognized as the king. And always, except in one case with the Judahite kings, you find the phrase, and his mother's name was. And Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the king of Judah. He is indeed the king of the world. And he's careful then to include this phrase, his mother was, or he was with his mother, Mary. Why? Because Mary in the pattern of the Old Testament, is the royal queen mother. She's the mother of God with us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And again, just to uh, I, I, you know, point out something that you mentioned, but to, to kind of double down on it, Jesus is not the only Messiah in the Bible, right? That's right. So uh, he's the Messiah that is important to us as Christians, but when someone is said to be the Messiah uh, right. throughout the Old Testament, that means that they're the anointed king, right? That's so right. Yeah. when we Promise see Messiah, we're like, oh, Jesus, the guy who, you yeah, know, right. the word made flesh come to die for our sins. Somebody who's picking up Matthew's gospel for the first time and sees Messiah is thinking, oh, the rightful yeah. king of the line of David. Right. right. That's what they're thinking when they see that word. You could You could think of it the way it functions as kind of like a coloring book when you bring it home and you see all the, the pictures are just black and white pages with outlines. Well, so those are those are the types, or they're, they're unfilled in, and then you fill them in, you color, you add all the detail, and then they're colored in. This is what the Old Testament is doing, uh, or the New Testament is doing with yeah. the whole, that Jesus is the colored page. He's been colored in as the filled-up image of the Old Testament type. Okay, let let me sort of just tie tie this up then. We see the Queen Mother in the Old Testament. We understand her role. Um, sitting at the right hand of the king, wearing a crown, seated on a throne, and all of that. And then we see Matthew at pains to announce to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7. He is the ultimate Messiah. He's the, he's the king who will sit on the throne and reign forever, and his mother's name is Mary, just like the kings, the Ju- the kings of <laughs> Judah in the Old Testament exactly. are named. And his mother's name is is Mary. And so Mary now is sitting there hearing this. I, I don't know how much she understood of, of uh, I'm, and I, I, I won't try to guess, but the background of all of this, what is she thinking when she hears the angel Gabriel say to her, you are going to bear a son and he is going to be the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophets 
uh, prophesied about. He is the king that will reign forever. Now, when we turn from Matthew's narrative to Luke's narrative, which is where I want to sit for a moment, the narrative of the ascend of the Annunciation in Luke and the visitation to Elizabeth. I think we see this theme of Mary as the Queen Mother continue and really come to life. Okay, in Luke's account of the Annunciation, Gabriel tells Mary she will bear a son. He'll sit on the throne of his father David. His kingdom will have no end. Luke 1, verse 32. Her son is going to sit on the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary is the Davidic king's mother. We see it once again. Mary is the queen mother of the kingdom of God. Now, we see this continue in the narrative of Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth. And this, again, is something that I never saw before. I mean, really, when it came to queen, you know, Matt, you were talking about what what it reminded you of. When I heard the word queen, I thought of Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what I thought about. But so all of this was new to me, the Old Testament and the new. But now listen to this. We see this theme continue in the, in the narrative of Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Let me just read the passage first and then comment on it. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped with joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, now, Again, think, put yourself in the shoes. Think about the situation here. Think about Elizabeth's response to Mary showing up at her door. Okay, we're told in Luke 1 verse 5 that, that Elizabeth was a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and the first high priest, okay? Elizabeth is of the Aaronic line. She is a descendant of Aaron, not, not just a high priest, but the original high priest, the brother of Moses. She's also the wife of Zechariah, who is a priest. She's also advanced in years, and she's known for her holiness. Luke tells us, this is in chapter 1, verse 6, that she and Zechariah were both righteous before the Lord, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. So, who is Elizabeth? A descendant of Aaron, the wife of a priest. She's older she leads this blameless life, her and her husband. This is well known. Mary, on the other hand, who is she? A teenager from the backwaters of Galilee, just way out in you know nowhere in the sticks. Right. Mary's no one. Mary's nothing special. And so the point is, what we would expect, especially in that culture where you you show honor and deference to your elders, but. In this situation, given who Elizabeth is and given who Mary is, by contrast, we would expect to read of Mary showing tremendous honor to Elizabeth. And yet, what we find is when Mary appears at Elizabeth's door, Elizabeth responds like you or I might respond 
if we were sitting around in our boxer shorts, you know, with a, <laughs> a wife wearing a wife beater T-shirt and eating a hot dog, if the if the doorbell rang and we came to the door and the Queen of England was st- standing on her porch, okay, that's how Elizabeth responds. Elizabeth right. responds as as though Mary's coming to see her is a privilege she can barely comprehend. Go ahead, Kenny. You got something on the tip of your tongue? No, I, I just I'm just responding to you. Like I, I'm trying to like make my body and my face do what <laughs> what yeah. Elizabeth w- would have been doing when she sees Mary. Oh, oh, oh wow! You know, I mean, it's it's there's yeah. this surprise, excitement, uh, and and. As, yeah, just, just you go for it, Ken. I'm, I'm right yeah, there with you. Yeah, I'm wearing my white beater T-shirt. I'm eating my hot dog and you know a bag, bag of chips and gu- guacamole or something. And I, <laughs> the doorbell rings. I go there and I open it, and and, and the, the Queen of England is standing on on my porch. Okay, whereas you would think that Mary shows up at the door, and that she would be showing all this honor and deference to this to Elizabeth, whose life, who's the nobility of her of her ancestry and her life and all that, but instead. Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, why is it granted me? How is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should appear on my steps? It's amazing. Now, yes. because and now, of just this, be, you know, to kind of yeah, put this ahead. all in, in, in context, too. I mean, there's a sense of anticipation um, with Elizabeth, right? Uh, you know, kind of almost like you see in the language of the story of the prodigal son where the father sees, mm-hmm. you know, the son coming a long way off. This is not like you eating chips on your couch, Ken, <laughs> right? This is Elizabeth yeah. who already knows that there are going to be incredible yeah. things happening around the birth of her own son, right? And now that Mary is yeah. on the way, these things are really coming to pass, right? Uh, so yeah. she's kind of having her own... Uh, she must increase, I must decrease moment there at the visitation in some ways. Yeah, and a number of scholars, both on Protestant and Catholic side, have understood, looking at this passage, looking at this narrative of the visitation, that uh, that various scholars have understood that Elizabeth um, is addressing Mary here as the royal mother of the king. And, and, and this comes through. Yes. Mary is the queen mother again. Why yes. is this granted to me? Why? How is it possible that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then the Magnificat, Mary's response to Elizabeth's greeting reveals her understanding of the tremendous privilege. She she may not have understood it at the moment that Gabriel appeared to her. It may have been something that had to sink in. But by now, she understands that her son is the king of of the eternal kingdom of David, the fulfillment of everything the prophets had to say, and she begins to understand who that makes her. Because she responds, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and ex- exalted those of low degree. And you catch the word thrones again here? Right. Who sits on thrones? Kings sit on thrones. And queen mothers, they sit on thrones. So, you know, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the narrative of the visitation um, shows us that Mary is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. It also is showing us most powerfully that Mary is the fulfillment of typology, the old covenant image of the mother of the queen. I mean, the queen mother, excuse me. All right, so... Uh, this is all pretty incredible stuff, and it's all stuff that you can't just pick up the Bible and automatically know, right? Because, again, 
if you're not reading it as the family history of a people, but instead reading it as a text that is supposed to provide you the blueprint of how to get saved, then you're not looking for these sorts of things. This is not a language that's familiar mm-hmm. to you. You're not in the light. Well, as Kenny, you are fond of saying, you're not reading the Bible with the church, right? You're not even reading the Bible with the chosen people of God, right? Which is really exactly. what you need to be doing right. to pick this up. Right. Uh, but exactly. there are probably a few commenters here, and I I would name them, but I'm not going to. But I think they know who they are. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're probably like, Ken Hensley, you are you know waxing eloquent on all this stuff about... Uh, queen Jewish mother, royalty, whatever, you still have not provided one scrap, one shred of evidence from the word that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. Yeah. 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 We, you know, we, so we do need to make that connection, Matt. And, and I agree. I, I would yeah. agree that okay, I, I think someone would say, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. I get it. <laughs> makes sense. But this part where you say now she's up in heaven. <laughs> what? Okay. So we, but here's the thing. Let's keep doing theology and let's keep following the biblical story. That would be my challenge. Anyone say, mm-hmm. well, where do you say she was assumed in heaven? I would say, let's keep doing theology. Let's keep reading the Bible. Let's see where the story goes. Okay. In order to see where the story goes, where do we have to go? Well, we got to go to the end of the story. We got to go to the end of the book. Got to go to the book of Revelation. And a Catholics would typically jump in to the, the question of Mary at chapter uh, at chapter 12, which I think is a great place to jump in. But I want to jump in a little earlier and connect what's happening in chapter 12 to what happens in chapter 5. Because Revelation, among other things, is a throne room scene. Going back to what, what Ken uh, said earlier, uh, thrones, who sits on thrones. So the book of Revelation puts us inside of a heavenly throne room and people sitting on thrones and crowns and all kinds of things like that become the imagery of this book of Revelation. And in chapter 5, in chapter 5, John is seen weeping because there's this scroll that's got the that's written on both sides and has all these seals on it. And he's searching everywhere, heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea, and he can't find anyone to open the scroll and loose its seals. Now that imagery is simply imagery of communicating that who has the authority to execute the will? So you see the scroll as a, as a, as God's will. Okay. Who can carry out God's will in the world? Asks John. No one can really execute the will of God in the world. I can't find anyone, uh, in, in the world. And one of the elders in the heavenly vision says to John, do not weep. See or look over there. <laughs> now listen to the language. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we've said Jesus is the Judahite king. So the lion is a king. The lion of the tribe of Judah, but there's more. The root of David. This is all the language that Matthew set up for us, that the Old Testament has us wanting uh, f- fulfillment for. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. All right, now sticking with the pattern laid out in the Old Testament, when a Judahite king ascends to his throne, nearly every time we find that his mother is mentioned. And with John's apocalyptic view from heaven, which I said is a throne room scene, or much of it, we also find, I wanted you to see it in chapter 5, a Judahite king, Jesus. And then at the end of... Uh, so, so, so I... Can you guys see that? There he is, the Judahite king, worthy king, seated on his throne, able to carry out 
the will of God. And by the way, one other thing happens in that text. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah can do it. And the John says, I turned and looked and behold, a lamb. The lion can do it. I saw a lamb. The lion can do it. I saw a lamb. Okay, but now watch what happens at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. The end of chapter 11, God's temple is opened and we're given a, a heavenly vision of the ark in heaven. I saw God's temple in heaven was open and I saw the ark. Great. That's where chapter 11 ends. <laughs> How does chapter 12 begin? And a portent was seen in heaven, a woman. I saw an ark and I turned and looked and I saw a woman. <laughs> I saw a lamb or saw a lion. I turned and or there's a lion. I turned and looked. I saw a lamb, an ark, a woman, a queen mother. The next thing that we see in the, the ark imagery is when John turns to see it, he sees the queen mother. And, and he, he doesn't see a peasant girl, you know, walking on a dirt path, you know, in, in grimy clothes. He sees a woman in regal apparel standing above the world. Where? In heaven. A portent appeared or a sign appeared in heaven. And so, just as it is with Jesus, when we're told about a lion and he looks to see a lamb in the very next verse, we have in Revelation 11, the ark of God in the very next verse, a regal queenly mother. And before I pass it back, uh, I want to just share quickly a, a principle of biblical interpretation that we have been using all along here, that, that Catholics use regularly. I learned it before I was a Catholic, and I think this whole series is dripping with it. And I actually learned it from the Old Testament biblical scholar John Walton in which he discusses what he calls high-context and low-context readings of Scripture. And so you mentioned, Matt, you know, our commenters in, you know, on our videos. I often find that what they're doing is replying to our content with low-context readings of Scripture. In other words, there's this refusal to connect the New Testament to the Old and to see the story evolving over the arc of time and over the, the arc of the narrative. They just want to, they want to see a text divorced from what, from the, what comes with the luggage that's, that's inside of that text. So a high context reading of scripture, we do this in our culture. We have high context and low context understandings of, of things. So just for fun here, if I were to say to you, um, Matt, may the force be, and then I stopped. May the force be, what would you think I was going to say next? I was going to say with you. Uh, right. And then I would get in an X-Wing and we go blow up the Death Star together. <laughs> right. So I don't I, just know your words. I know your mission. <laughs> there you go. So I said, may the force be, and then I stopped, and you filled in the two words that were missing. Why? Because you have a high context understanding of the, the words that I said over here, you know what goes inside of them. If I said, you know, Ken, you're a little older. If I said, I'm looking over a, what would you fill that in with? I'm um, looking a four leaf clover. Right. You would, you would put the second part of that in because you have a high context understanding of the first thing I said. So yeah. you know what goes in the second thing. And 
please, for those watching, understand that the people in the biblical story, not us who are 2,000 years away from it, and especially those of us who have ecclesial amnesia, who haven't been reading the Bible with the church, the people in the Bible have a high-context view of the story of Scripture that's been happening all along. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that Matthew and Mark and Luke, the, the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers, are, are filling in May the Force, the Old Testament, be with you in the New Testament. They're, they're putting the, the people in place that naturally go there and this would be their expectation and they they would they would just do it naturally and they would see it naturally and since the church has a living memory that the catholic church has a living memory that goes back to before luke is written the church can remember to see mary in these ways as well and just to kind of i guess demystify it for a moment just bring it down to the purely temporal level so if Jesus were a mere Judahite revolutionary, and if Palm Sunday had gone differently, Jesus not God, just man, um, a popular uprising takes root, and um, Pilate, Herod, they're overthrown, they put Jesus uh, on the throne, uh, and the scribes begin writing the book of Third Kings, right? Uh, I would bet you one of Ken's bags of chips and a hot dog that when they started writing about it, they would say in the 18th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pilate was governor of uh, Judea and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, Jesus took the throne of his father, David. His mother's name was Mary. <laughs> I mean, that's how, it would be, that's how it would go down. If but all the just... material is there to do that. It's all yeah, there. Yeah. It's yeah. all but, there. And to transition to the next point, but Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. There you go. So um, this is where we kind of transition, uh, I guess, to the question uh, of, of is it unbiblical to, to, to take that next step? Yeah, well, yeah, we can spend a moment. You know, um, we've gone a long time, but let me just talk for a second about some of the theological implications of the assumption and things that the church understood, which kind of argue in a backward way for the idea. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, first of all, um, we see the divine maternity of Mary. We see Mary as mother of God supported, this dogma supported, which was formally defined in 431 at the Council of Ephesus, and that we covered in our second episode of this series. If Mary is queen mother of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom, the Davidic king reigning forever and ever, then at minimum, she is the mother of the Messiah, who is God incarnate, so she is mother of God. So this, this theological implication f follows from this. And of course, we're not saying by this that she's a divine person, the church has never said that, but that the person she gave birth to was God with us, was Emmanuel, a divine person. So that's one theological implication, is that she is certainly the mother of that it's certainly appropriate to refer to her as the mother of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, mother of God. But a second is this. In the image of Mary as queen mother of the fulfilled divinity kingdom, we find support too in the church. The church found support for the appropriate veneration of Mary and also for seeking Mary's intercession. 
right. uh, going to Mary and asking her to pray. Now, we don't have time today to go into this, and we're going to come back to it um, in, a, in another episode shortly. But, but I do want to quote briefly from Brant Petrie's book, a wonderful book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of, the, of Mary, where he says this, If Mary is the queen mother of the kingdom of God, then it is fitting for Christians to give her the honor due to the queen of Christ's kingdom. Not worship, but honor. That follows. If she's the queen mother, then giving her honor makes sense. And if Mary the queen is alive in heaven, which is the image we get from Revelation chapter 12, you know, I love that. He looks, he sees the lion of the tribe. He looks, he sees a lamb. Here, the heavens are open and the Ark of the Covenant is there. He looks and he sees a woman and she's in heaven with a crown of 12 stars on her head. So if Mary the Queen is alive in heaven, as Revelation 12, 1 suggests, then it makes sense for Christians to ask her to pray for them and to intercede on their behalf with the King. And uh, this is a reality that Christians have always sort of had in their uh, in, in their natural bloodstream to venerate Mary and there's so much more, all the quotations we could read and don't have time to right now, but to venerate Mary as the mother of uh, of the divine Son of God and to seek her intercession. Um, just quickly, a, a few pieces of evidence. On a fragment of papyrus discovered in Egypt, this prayer was found. Quote, We take refuge in your mercy, Mother of God. Do not disregard our prayers in troubling times, but deliver us from danger. O only pure one, and only blessed one. Here's on a scrap of papyrus that's dated from the third or fourth century where we find this prayer. And then from the great Gregory Nazians and one of the Cappadocian fathers that were so important at the, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, um, Gregory Nazians, and he speaks in, in, in one place of a young woman named Justina who, quote, took refuge in God and spent time, and I'm quoting him, imploring the Virgin Mary to bring her assistance since she too was a virgin and in danger. So because Mary is the queen mother and mother of God incarnate, it has always seemed just very natural for the people of God to venerate her, to give Mm -hmm. her, to show her great honor and deference and to call upon her in their need. And, Kenny, I know you had a point you wanted to throw in too. Yeah, I I, I want to tie into what you just said there, Ken, and uh, maybe a way of doing this is to propose a question. How can we tell how Christians from the year 33 AD to the year, let's say, 85 to 90 AD, which is when the Gospel of Luke, just to pick one, is written? How can we, is there any way to find out what a Christian living from Pentecost all the way up to uh, just before Luke was written, thought about Mary. If I wanted to know, what would I need in order to find out? Well, I propose that we would need to find literature talking about Mary that covered not only Mary's early life, but which also provides clues into Mary's, let's call it a fan base, for lack of a better word, in literature about her after those first five decades, like right after it. So so please hear this. When you're reading the Gospel of Luke and you're reading 
that literature, that is around five to six decades after Pentecost when this finally becomes available mm -hmm. to the church. So please get this. There is a church with a communal, historical, theological, liturgical life with a, with a memory and a tradition and a language intact functioning before, before Luke is written. And in fact, then Luke says in his gospel that it's 100% based on first-hand accounts from people living in those decades mm -hmm. up to the time that he has written it uh, in the church. So now watch, Luke has Elizabeth calling Mary the mother of my Lord. There's no way around it in the, in the world of promise and fulfillment that that's Gabira language, queen mother language. That's how Luke is talking about Mary or has Elizabeth talking about Mary 85 years into church history. And Luke has Mary, in a sense, prophesying a command to the community of Jesus, which is already around for a half of a century or so or more before Luke was written. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. So, so no Christian living from year 85, 90 on is going to go, oh gosh, I just read Luke. And according to Luke, we're supposed to call Mary blessed. I, I never knew that. No. Mm -hmm. Luke is using a literary device and inviting us into the already normative Marian belief that the earliest Christians who, if they were obeying what Mary had said, must be done by all Christians, were already referring to Mary as the Blessed Virgin Mary. This kind of talk would have been normative. It would have been detected before Luke was written. So in that sense, Luke gives us a window into how Christians were already thinking about Mary uh, from the time that Luke takes us all the way back to the Annunciation. So, so no, the, the bodily assumption is is not, you know, it's not about God performing an impressive trick. It's not about some special Catholic thing that only Catholics believe. The dogma is connected to what God had been doing all across salvation history, what he's doing in the biblical story of salvation, and it's connected to God's ultimate purposes for everybody, for all people who are in Christ, uh, otherwise known as the Church of Jesus. And so the assumption is connected to ecclesiology. Now, one of my favorite Catholic scholars on Mary is Hansurs von Balthasar, and of course, as I said, Joseph Ratzinger, and they call Mary the church at its source. So think of it this way. Mary is the church as one embodied representative person, who stands for all of us who are in Christ, okay? So what do I mean about God's ultimate purposes for people who are in Christ? Well, by that, we're connecting our Mariology to our ecclesiology, to our eschatology, so that in other words, we can just say this, Mary's past is our future. As Ratzinger says in his book, Daughter Zion, which I've quoted before, to that extent, we could say that the dogma of the assumption is simply the highest degree of canonization in which the predicate saint is recognized in the most strict sense, that is, being holy and undividedly in eschatological, eschatological fulfillment. In other words, Mary is now where we're headed. She is where we're going. Or to paraphrase using my own words, Mary, being the embodiment of the church herself, is now where and is now what and is now how we will be 
after the end of the age. In a person, the fulfillment of Paul's insisted, think of what Paul says in Ephesians. He insists that we are seated now in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where? At his right hand. In what kind of chair? A throne. (laughs) So an actual concrete enthronement language has an embodied fulfillment in the person of the mother and God of God, the Gabira, the queen mother of the Judaic king, Jesus. I'm going to just stop right there. I've, I've just said way you know, too much. Already. You know, the image of her as the church at its source, mm-hmm. that what, what happens to Mary, what happened to Mary is what will happen to all of us in Christ. Exactly. That just shoots my mind to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation or the last section where John looks and he sees the bridegroom coming down and the great marriage feast of the bridegroom and the bride, and the bride is the church. Yes. So, yeah, Mary is the church at a source. Mary is the church in microcosm. The, 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 the bride is the church. And, yes. uh, the, and that's how the whole Bible ends. It begins with Adam and Eve and a marriage and a male and female, and it ends with Christ and his church fulfilled. And yeah, too, too much talking. So let me just say so this much. in conclusion. Okay, we understand that there's a lot more to say. We've wanted to deal with these in these first episodes with the dogmatic teaching regarding Mary and say things about that. But we're going to take and we're going to take a couple of weeks off at this point. But when we return, we're going to record a couple of more episodes to unpack some of the things that are more along the lines of Marian devotion, um, such as, well, to use Martin Luther's language, including Mary in our prayers, that is praying the Hail Mary, praying the Rosary. Uh, maybe talk about the Marian feasts and solemnities, uh, more about the veneration of Mary, the intercession of Mary, all the things that flow naturally out of the faith that is shaped by the church's Marian dogmas that we've looked at. And I will zip it up there too. Hopefully other, you know, some weird titles for Mary that sound kind of strange, like Seat of Wisdom, you know, or like Tower of Ivory, things like that. Uh, the only <laughs> last thing I'll add to this question of the assumption and what really did seal the deal for me because of my, uh, I guess, my odd personality is there's this morbid thing, or at least it seems morbid to non-Catholics, uh, that uh, Catholics have this weird, morbid fascination by keeping the body parts of their favorite Christians and putting them in like special places in rooms and stuff. Um, and... We actually have people arguing over which place certain apostles' bones and you know relics mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people would go into the arena and get what was left of certain martyrs after the lions were done. Very, Absolutely. very committed to collecting these relics and bodies of yep. the holy men and women, and yet nobody east or west has ever laid claim to saying we've got the body of Mary. Of all the bodies that you'd think that the early Christians would want to make sure they had. The one that Jesus came out of. The one that gave birth (laughs) to Jesus, and that is the Gebi Ra. Where's that body? The Queen Mother. Where's that body? Yeah. We don't have it. So, hopefully this helps a little bit. Again, we had to actually race through some stuff. You should have seen the original notes on this episode. (laughs) Uh, But you uh, can go back and watch all the Marian Dogma ones. Uh, Go to chnetwork.org. And uh, click on the on the journey link. You can also join our online community for more discussion on these topics. Community.chnetwork.org. You can go uh, to support our work and maybe even become a monthly donor by going to chnetwork.org/donate. As Ken mentioned, 
um, taking a few weeks off of On the Journey. But in the meantime, uh, next week, we've got a brand new episode, actually a few episodes over the next few weeks of Coming Home Network Presents uh, that I'll be hosting. And I'm really excited. We've recorded some extremely fun conversations in regard to that as well. So in the meantime, Ken, Kenny, it's been a whirlwind. I'll talk to you on the other we side. We will see you. Bless Bye-bye. you guys.